Right, okay. Uh, gra grab your Bibles. Now, the Demonology series. Um, <clears throat> what we've seen so far are the two ways in which the demonic angels, the fallen angels, are conducting their warfare. And remember, in this warfare, the arena is planet Earth, and the prize is the human race, is people. We've seen the two ways that the demons are conducting their warfare in that arena. The first way, and the first half of this series was concentrating on this, the first way was what I call personal demonization detachment duties, i.e. some of the demons their job is the indwelling of individuals, should they be accessible. So one movement or one aspect of the way that the <coughs> fallen angels are waging war um, is that some of them are assigned specifically to the indwelling of individuals should any individuals be accessible to them. And that indwelling can be by one or more demons, depending on the individual. And I've called that personal demonization detachment. Some of the angels are specifically authorized by Satan to do that. That is their bag, that is their, their place, their part of the warfare. And, uh, and then secondly, we went on, and last week we did a kind of an introduction to the second aspect and it was the general activities of the angels uh, remember Satan being their big white chief Satan is an archangel and these demons have fallen angels under him and we saw their general activities behind the backdrop of human affairs remember I said that we peeked behind the cosmic curtain and what we saw uh, in these angelic beings was that they are in fact the demonic push at back of human history, alright? And we saw that the fallen angels who are concerned with that aspect of the warfare uh, are referred to in the Bible as principalities and powers. Uh, they have other names as well, spiritual hosts of wickedness and stuff like that. But when the Bible talks about the principalities and powers, it is talking about the demonic fallen angels who are concerned not with indwelling individuals, but who are concerned with the wider area of the influencing of the human race and individuals from the outside rather from, than from inside individuals. And uh, you'll remember we looked at Daniel and uh, sort of principalities and powers, and remember we saw there the prince of Persia. We saw the demon who was at back of what the nation of Persia was doing at that time in regards to Israel. Uh, we saw reference to the prince of Greece, uh, you know, sort of the demon who was going to be behind the world power that would rise up after Medo-Persia fell. And have you made the connection, prince, principalities? Can you see? It's simply the terminology. And we saw also that the goody angels are principalities as well. And we saw in Daniel that Israel has its very own personal goody angel, and the prince of Israel was Michael, the archangel. So we saw that this term principalities and powers referring 
quite specifically to the demons who are involved in this second aspect of uh, their spiritual warfare, uh, finally against God, against the Lord, and with the human race as the prize, and with planet Earth as the uh, battleground. And, uh, and what we saw is that uh, you can't take it to the ridiculous extremes that many Bible teachers and Christians do. You know, they're sort of like these lists, they got the names of what demons are over what towns and stuff like that. We saw that it can just get absolutely crazy, you know, and go way beyond what the Bible enables you to deduce. And we must make sure we never do that. The Bible has given us what we need to know. There is no need to exceed that. So we've seen that the whole thing can get a bit nutter in the hands of many Christians, but nevertheless, we saw that we are indeed pitted against the influence and the activity of these principalities and powers demons at every level, from local to global. We saw whether it's what's happening on a global scale, whether it's what's happening on a national scale, whether it's what's happening on a local scale, Chigwell, Woodford, Loughton, or whether it's what's happening with your next door neighbours. Behind it all are the principalities and powers, this demonic push at back of human affairs. Remember, we're not dealing here with personal demonization. We covered that quite separately. We're not now talking about individuals being demonized. We dealt with that separately because it is quite separate. We're now on principalities and powers. And that is demons exerting their influence from the outside. The demons on personal demonization detachment exert their influence by getting inside people. Therefore, they need casting out. But with principalities and powers, we're talking about the exertion of demonic influence over just about everything, but from the outside. Not influencing individuals from the inside, but influencing just about everything from the outside. So therefore, with the principality and powers type demons, you can't cast them out, because they're not in. You only cast demons out when they're in people. The principalities and powers aren't in, they're outside. What we're going to see, our approach to them is, isn't casting them out, but it is an actual fact pulling them down. And uh, this, this tonight is going to be the first of three talks on the whole area of spiritual warfare. And, and that's kind of where we're going to be going over three talks in, um, in more detail. But the question that uh, we you know, sort of need to cover tonight is quite simply this. How exactly then do these principalities and powers go about their business? What is the nature of their kind of power? I mean, if there's a demonic push at back of all human affairs, and if it's these angelic beings, these demons who are doing it, then what exactly is the nature of their warfare? What are the weapons they use? What, if you like, is their, their, their modus operandi? If they're influencing the human race, then how exactly is it that they do that? How is it that demons can be affecting the human race when the human race is made up of individuals with God-given free will? I mean, how is it that these principalities and powers actually work? The answer to that is very, very simple, and it's basically this. They do it by using ideas 
which are attractive to the fallen sinful nature. It's as simple as that. They influence and control via ideas which are attractive to the sinful nature, i.e. they manipulate people via wrong thinking. The wrong thinking, however, being suited to the fact that every individual is a sinner. They quite simply do it with thought. The principalities and powers are, in actual fact, the demonic thought police of the human race. And what we're going to see tonight is that literally it's a battle for the mind. And that is what you've got to underline. That is what spiritual warfare is. It is a battle for the mind. The Holy Spirit of truth in the red corner, if you will, and in the blue corner, or should it be the black corner, uh, you have these demons with their wrong thinking and their wrong ideas. Now, we're going to go back to a passage that we saw in an earlier study, and this is now going to become absolutely fundamental to understanding this. Go to Matthew chapter 16. You'll remember when we covered this in an earlier talk, and now we want to apply this in a slightly fuller way than we did before. And we're wanting Matthew chapter 16. And uh, a little, little story here concerning Jesus and Peter. Let's, let's actually read, read the verses. Matthew 16 and, and verse 21. <clears throat> From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get, me, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not on the side of God, but of men. Now, you'll remember when we did this, the, you know, a few talks ago, I showed you that in the Greek, this is not a very good translation. The Greek says, you know, the idea in the Greek is this, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance, uh, for these are not the thoughts of God, but of men. And the thoughts of men are directly equated with the thoughts of Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan, these are the thoughts of men. All right, now, now just, just hold that. The basic point we saw when we did this passage earlier was to simply see that the sinful nature is on Satan's side in this conflict. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone uh, who isn't a Christian, uh, who, you know, believes in Satan, the vast majority of the human race don't. But whether individual sinners believe in Satan or not, it's quite irrelevant whether they believe in him or not. Nevertheless, the human sinful nature is completely on Satan's side. There is a complete identification 
between the nature of Satan and demons and the nature of a fallen human being. Why? The common thread is that they're all in rebellion against God. Now, in, in this little story here, what we've got is Jesus is talking about the sufferings that he was going to face. And indeed, had Jesus not faced these sufferings, no one would have been saved and we'd still all be heading to the lake of fire. These sufferings culminating on his death on the cross and being raised from the dead, that was what it was all about. That was the heart of God's plan. His sufferings was why Jesus came to this earth anyway. Now, it's just the fact that disciples will often have to go through what their masters go through, all right? Uh, you know, Jesus himself said that, you know, where, you know, where I go, you'll have to follow. You know, if they hated me, so they'll hate you, all right? So it's simply a fact that if you follow someone, if you're totally committed to them, uh, the chances are that you're going to go through very similar things to what they go through. So therefore, Peter is a disciple of Jesus. Uh, Jesus has been healing the sick, he's been raising the dead, he's been preaching all these very, very, very exciting sermons, and he's got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people following him. And it's great. I mean, following Jesus was quite simply the sensible thing to do at that point in his ministry. Now, Jesus starts to bring in another element of being a disciple. And this is the element where people start getting cold feet, you see. Because Jesus starts talking about all this suffering that he's going to be murdered. Now, given that the disciples knew full well that uh, the disciple often goes through what their master goes through, what Jesus is saying here about his impending suffering and that has implications for the disciples, is he? Because here is Jesus talking about suffering, and the implication is, oh goodness, does that mean that we're going to have to suffer too, perhaps? And the implication begins to dawn on them that what Jesus says about his own suffering has implications for them as individuals, all right? Now then, therefore, because the sinful nature does not much like the idea of suffering, particularly for righteousness, the sinful nature is prepared to suffer for what it wants, but the sinful nature is not prepared to suffer for righteousness. Can you see? So the implications begin to click in Peter's mind. Jesus is going to suffer. Oh goodness, I'm a disciple. Disciples often go the way of their masters. If Jesus is going to suffer, that means there's a good chance that I'm going to suffer. Now, Peter's sinful nature did not reckon too much on the idea of suffering. Now, at this moment, he is in danger. And we must all put ourselves in his shoes, because we're human beings as well, like him. But he's in danger. And the danger is this. He's now, by Jesus, he's being presented with a truth which his sinful nature doesn't want to be true. Do you see what I mean? It was simply a fact that Jesus was going to suffer. Jesus was speaking a fact. It was a truth. But the point was, because it held implications for him, Peter didn't want this truth to be true. Is he? He wanted it to go away. He didn't want it to be true. Now, therefore, is he going to go with his sinful nature? 
Or is he going to go with his new nature as a Christian? Because he was born again. We've all got new natures. Now, the new nature in Peter would have, yeah, amen, that's right, Lord, whatever you say. But Peter's sinful nature did not want this to be true, was not willing uh, to, you know, to go with this. So what happens is Satan immediately starts work on Peter. Now, one, of, one thing to realise, it is highly unlikely that Satan has ever worked on you personally. I mean, think about it. Satan can only be in one place at one time. Uh, one of the big mistakes that so many Christians make about Satan is that if, I mean, if you say, sadly, even to many Christians, say, what's the opposite of God? They'll say, the devil. What a lot of rubbish. God is infinite. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. All of him is everywhere all at the same time. We can't, you know, envisage that. But the, the same is not true with Satan. I mean, if Satan is at this moment, shall we say, in a Czechoslovakia, or maybe he's having one of his accusing sessions in heaven, because a certain amount of Satan's time is to this day spent in heaven, accusing the brethren, as the Bible says. So if Satan is in heaven, he's not here on earth. And if he's here on earth, but in Czechoslovakia, then he's not here in England. But if he was here in Chigwell, he couldn't be, for instance, in America. Can you see? Now, the point is, that temptation and that which we say, oh, Satan's having a go at me, it, it, it isn't, it's very unlikely, it's Satan. It's one of the, de it's the demons, the principalities and powers. But here, it's Satan working on Peter. Why? Well, because it's Jesus that Peter is talking to. The only reason it was Satan himself was because this was Jesus himself. Can you see? I mean, sort of Satan considered, well, you know, I mean, I'm not going to leave it to my mere minion angels. This is Jesus. This is my battle. You know, Satan remains ever an egoist. So the point is that Satan now starts working on Peter. And it's Satan because there's Jesus, you know. So Satan's got his biggest gun out himself. That, that, that's the way he thinks, okay. So Satan starts... Uh, suggesting to Peter via influencing his thought processes. This is the whole point. How is it that Satan influences Peter here? It's by affecting his thought processes. And what Satan does is he suggests to Peter that Jesus had got it wrong. Easy. Peter is hearing something he doesn't want to be true, because who wants to suffer, especially for Jesus? All right? That's how the sinful nature thinks. Oh, suffer for money, go through a bit of hardship, you know, if, that, if I think I'm going to make a bob or two out of it at the end. But the sinful nature will not suffer for righteousness. All right? So Peter does not want suffering to be part of the Christian life. He doesn't want it to be true. So Satan's working on it. And what's the end result of it? Satan managed to persuade Peter, because Peter is biased in this, you see. He's very biased. Satan manages to persuade Peter that Jesus had got it wrong about this suffering. Hence, Peter says, no, Lord, this will never happen. And he rebukes Jesus. He tells him off. You know, he kind of corrects him. You've got it wrong, Jesus, and rebukes him. All right? Uh, now then, at the same time, the Holy Spirit was also working on Peter, influencing his thinking. But the question is, what's going to win out? the truth or the lie. And here the lie won out because Peter gave in to his sinful nature. Alright?
So you've got the Holy Spirit working on Peter, trying to influence his thinking to get him to accept what Jesus said. Whereas Satan, here representing the principalities and powers, is working on him to persuade him not to accept that what Jesus was saying was true. And Peter was vulnerable because his sinful nature wanted to go with what Satan was suggesting. So then, Peter's right on the brink. Jesus is saying something. Here is truth. But that truth, as it always does, has implications for the sinful nature. All of God's truth, any one individual bit of God's truth, whether it's the whole lot together, or whether it's little bits of it, uh, or whether it's the whole Bible, or whether it's a couple of verses, every tiny component part of God's truth has implications for the sinful nature. And the sinful nature doesn't like it. So therefore, Peter is on the brink. Which way is he going to go? Good old Peter, I can identify with him. He goes with his sinful nature. Satan's argument wins the day, all right? Because it's what he wanted to hear. Not bothered with the truth, it's what he wanted to hear. So he concludes that Jesus was wrong. Now, the moment, the moment that Peter did that, the moment that Peter concluded that Jesus, the very truth himself, was wrong, bang, Satan's in like a flash. Do you remember we saw the verse, give no place, you know, to the devil, and boom, you know, Peter rolls out the red carpet, bang, in comes Satan, and Peter is now a fully-fledged channel for Satan to have a go at Jesus through him. All right. So, and what we then have is that we have that Satan through Peter, is now trying to talk Jesus out of going to the cross. Now, just, just note, just note how desperate Satan was on this occasion. I mean, we must ask the question, is this the best that he could do? And the answer is yes. I mean, you know, get an idea of how desperate Satan is. The best he can come up with is to try and talk Jesus out of the cross by doing it through Peter, hoping that Jesus didn't realise it was him influencing Peter. I mean, this is, this is the manoeuvre of a man who's on the way down, isn't it? I mean, you know, this great archangel, the most glorious of the angelic creation, is here grasping at this kind of straw. But that is the truth about Satan. Every, every morning, I say every morning he wakes up because, you know, angels don't sleep. But as it were, every morning Satan wakes up and has to hunt around for another little straw to grasp. All right. And what we need to do as Christians is to realise that that is his predicament. You know, rather than this, oh, Satan, Satan. He's nothing. Compared to us, yes. But compared to Jesus, he's nothing. And we're raised up with Christ. So what you've got here then is quite simply that Satan has influenced Peter's thinking. Peter goes for that, sides with his sinful nature, does, takes the selfish way out, i.e. if Jesus suffers, that means I'm going to suffer. Right, logical conclusion, got to talk Jesus out of suffering. 
You know, if I can stop Jesus from suffering, then maybe I won't have to suffer. And of course, uh, Peter here has become a, a tool that Satan is simply manipulating in order to try and get in Jesus' way. Obviously, it doesn't work. Jesus, moving in the gift of the discerning of spirits, realises exactly that Peter is simply here being the mouthpiece for the devil, all right? And so he responds accordingly, get thee behind me, Satan. But then he says this all-important thing, for these are not the thoughts of God, but of men. So Jesus, realising, equates man's thinking, the normal thought processes of fallen man is on an absolute par with the normal thought processes of Satan and the fallen angels. And can you see, you have that time. Human thinking is directly equatable with satanic thinking. The sinful nature is on a par with the demonic nature. Uh, there are few things that human beings have in common with angels because they're totally different orders of creation in the sense that there are a few things that, for instance, a fish might have in common with a kangaroo because they're a different type of species or creation. But one of the things that we have in common with demons and Satan himself, the one thing we have in common is a sinful nature. Satan's got one, all the demons have got one, and so have we. And can you see, it's that oneness between the satanic fallen nature and the demonic fallen nature and the human fallen nature, that is the means whereby principalities and powers can become the controlling force at back of human affairs. Go, go to James, the epistle of James. And I'll show you, you know, a couple of other places where this, this comes out very, very clearly if you're looking for it. Maybe little verses that get overlooked or people read them and they don't quite realise the import of them. But tonight we can. In James 3 and verse 15. <clears throat> now, listen to this. <clears throat> um, Possibly before too long, or within the next year or 18 months, uh, we will actually be doing the book, you know, this book of James verse by verse. And one of the things that we're going to see when we do that uh, is that the first three chapters of, of James, the, the method he uses uh, in the letter is that he compares the true with the counterfeit. So that you're, you know, James deals with the fact that there is um, a true faith that comes from God and there is a counterfeit faith. Uh, there is um, a genuine wisdom from God. There is a counterfeit wisdom from God. And that's basically what James does. Now, this particular verse that we want here, James 3 verse 15, deals with uh, wisdom. And just look what he says. He says, this wisdom is not such as comes, as comes down from above. He's saying, look, don't be taken in by wisdom. Even wisdom has to be tested. You've got to test wisdom to find out whether or not it's of God or not, all right? And he says, this wisdom is not as comes down from above, i.e. not God's wisdom, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. 
you see that? What's he talking about here? He's talking about human wisdom as opposed to God's wisdom. And we know it's human wisdom because he says it's earthly. Demons aren't earthly, they're heavenly beings. We are earthly beings, all right? He says it's unspiritual. Fallen humanity is carnal, not spiritual. The opposite of spiritual, carnal, unspiritual. He's clearly talking about human wisdom, but then he says it's demonic. Why? Because the sinful human nature is completely identified with the demonic nature. And you see it there. Earthly wisdom is demonic. These are the thoughts of God, not of God, but of men. But Jesus said that to Peter, having said, first get thee behind me, Satan. There's no difference between the thoughts of Satan, the nature of Satan and demons, and the thoughts and nature of the human sinful nature. All right. Uh, go to John. Go to John chapter 8. See this again. I hope there'll be uh, one or two verses tonight that will become clear that maybe you've never been all oh, not quite sure what that means. Hope tonight they'll become clear in this context. John chapter 8, verse 44. Now, this is, this is something that Jesus is saying specifically to the Pharisees, uh, who specifically were Jewish, um, but, you know, they didn't believe on him. They were unbelievers, all right? They were not born again. John 8 and verse 44. And Jesus says something here which is staggering. Look at this. He's talking to the Pharisees, but this would be, this was the same of me before I became a Christian. And this was the same of each one of you before you became Christians. This is the truth of our natural state. He says, you are of your father, the devil. That is the condition of every unbeliever. The sinful nature is a child of the devil. Uh, I remember hearing a really funny story about John Knox. He was one of the reformers in Scotland, and uh, he was certainly a Christian. But I mean, Christ, you know, especially then, and especially in Scotland, uh, Christianity was a little bit, always a little bit dour. There weren't a lot of fun in it, and these men were very authoritarian, and you know, understandable the products of their age, I suppose. But there was a story when one of his daughters was was two minutes late for breakfast, and of course he was a staunch disciplinarian, was John Knox, and if his children stepped out of line, bang, they got it, you know, I mean, far too authoritarian, but as I say, he was a product of his age, and his little girl, you know, sort of came down from bed, she's two minutes late for breakfast, and she came in the room and he roared at her, you child of the devil, he roared in his best preaching voice, and she said, sorry father, <laughs> which I rather think put, put John Knox in his place. Um, <laughs> But, you know, but, but here, what we're seeing is, Jesus said to unbelievers, you are of your father the devil, your will is to do your father's desires. Well, what's Jesus saying? He's saying to unbelievers, in your natural state, i.e. all you've got is a sinful nature, you haven't got a new one because you're not born again. He's saying, you and Satan want the same things, broadly speaking, you're completely identified. And what we have to realise is that even though we're Christians, we indeed have a new nature, but that old nature is still there. And our old nature has not changed in the slightest. 
following Jesus does not change your sinful nature. Your sinful nature is your sinful nature is your sinful nature is your sinful nature. And God don't want to change it, he wants to kill it. He wants us to die to it. It's our new nature that creates the changes. And it's like, have you ever thought, in the Bible, what is the constant theme? Who is our Father? God is our Father. Why is God our Father? Because we have been born again into his family. We have a new dad. But who was our last dad? Satan. And when we were born again, we were adopted into God's family and taken out of Satan's family. So for us, Satan is no longer our father. But he used to be our father. And our new nature, we saw in John, cannot sin because our new nature is after the likeness of God himself. Our new nature cannot sin. It's incapable of sinning. In the same way that our old nature can only sin. And in the same way that our new nature is just like Jesus, the old nature is just like Satan. And we've seen the Christian life is, which nature are you going to live in? Can you see? But the important thing we need to be seeing here is that the sinful nature, whether yours, mine, or people as yet unconverted, the sinful nature is completely at one with Satan and the demons, be it the principalities and powers, or be the demons on personal <laughs> demonization detachment. And here we're seeing this complete oneness, this total identification in the Bible between the sinful nature and the demons and Satan himself. Go to John 13 now, uh, which, John 13, and uh, we're gonna have a look here at Judas. All right, Judas puzzles some people. I hope you won't be quite so puzzled uh, about him. Now, was he Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus? And uh, you know, after Jesus was, um, you know, was crucified, uh, you know, Judas went out and and committed suicide. Now, let's 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 just read first of all John 13 verse two. Now, look at the um, look at the build up. Look at the process here that's going on. And during supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. So the thought is there. The suggestion is there. Now then, is Judas going to go with it? Or is he going to resist it? What is Judas going to do? Is he going to go with a sinful nature? Go down to verse 26. Jesus answered, um, it is he to whom I shall give this morsel when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after eating the morsel, Satan entered into Judas. And again, it was Satan uh, because he, he was dealing with Jesus. That's the only reason it was Satan in person. You know, this is Jesus and I will deal with him in person. I'm not going to trust this to my minions, all right? Um, then. Uh, then Satan entered into him, all right? So here, again, through the absolute oneness between the sinful nature and what Satan wanted, Judas becomes a channel for demonic power. 
that Satan is able to manipulate Judas into doing what he wanted to do because Judas and Satan in that situation wanted the same thing. Now then, some people may say, well look, why didn't Judas go with his new nature, right? Peter didn't, he failed. Now the thing that people don't realise about Judas is that Judas was, ne he never became a Christian. Judas never was born again. He was an unbeliever. He could have been born again. Just, just go back into chapter 12, the previous chapter, and I'm just going to read the first six verses. This might surprise you. If you've, uh, you'll often find that people can make Judas out to be a kind of a victim. A victim. You know, that he was just kind of mistaken. All right. Now, this is the truth about Judas. All right. Let's read from verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. There they made him supper. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at table with him. Mary took a pound of costly ointment of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the ointment. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, here we have the fact that Mary has poured out this very valuable sacrifice at Jesus' feet. And the response that Judas gave was, what a waste, this could have been given to the poor. And a lot of people represent Judas as being rather the, the, you know, the one with the social concern absolutely untrue. Read on the next verse. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to take what was put into it. Judas, when Jesus first called him, got the job as being the disciples' treasurer. Now Jesus knew that Judas was a thief, but still made him a treasurer. But the only reason that Judas stuck in the three and a half years of the ministry of Jesus is because he was making a lot of money out of it. Because he was, as it were, continuously milking the general fund. Yeah. All right? Yeah. So Judas was not a disciple. He was not a believer at all. And Satan, because Judas was just totally going with his sinful nature, we see here how Satan was able to control Judas and kind of move him a bit like a piece on a chessboard. So what we're seeing is this. The principalities and powers, this group of demons who manipulate and control from the outside, they influence human affairs from the outside, what they do is they manipulate people, be it individuals or the entire human race, and therefore, if you manipulate the human race, you manipulate human history as well, all right? They manipulate and control human affairs. They're the push behind human affairs. And they do this by putting ideas into people's minds which are contrary to the truth, which are contrary to God's ways, but which suit the sinful nature. Now, all the principalities and powers can do is put the ideas there. Everyone has free will, and Satan cannot go against people's free will. All right? But if any such ideas are then acted on by people, all right, then 
principalities and powers inspired manipulation has taken place. You see, quite simply, if there's any situation, you've got what God wants and what Satan wants. Now, how does Satan manipulate? Well, because in any situation, Satan and the sinful natures of the human beings involved want the same thing. So where Satan has human beings who in any one situation want the same as him, i.e. not God's will, then he can manipulate those people through their own free will because they want the same as him. Remember Jesus said to unbelievers, you have your father the devil, you do what your father desires, you see. So principalities and powers control and manipulate because the sinful nature receives the ideas that the principalities and powers put in people's heads, agree with the ideas and act on the ideas, therefore becoming unwitting pawns in what Satan and these principalities are up to. And that is how demonic manipulation and control works. And it works from an individual level right up to national level and right up to global level, all right? Think of it, it is psychological warfare. You see what I mean? Um, you know, it's the big lie. I mean, in all modern warfare, you have the psychological warfare department. Uh, you know, sort of like you've got the men who aren't, they're not concerned with firing guns, they're not concerned with shooting people, they're concerned with the psychological warfare that demoralizes and deceives and tricks the enemy. Well, this purely is Satan's approach. Psychological warfare, if you like a massive propaganda campaign, but here is the great, uh, if you like, the key to Satan's success. Human beings don't believe in the one who's doing it. Human beings are oblivious that they are being used as the pawns in a war. And indeed, one of the reasons uh, that traditionally, I mean, it's like, you know, when you talk about the devil, little creature with horns and a tail, the exact opposite to what the Bible teaches. The Bible says he is an angel of light. He is incredibly beautiful. But the world thinks about the devil and, you know, little goblins and stuff like that. Satan has painted those pictures of himself so modern man will not believe in him. Now, if that's the devil, I don't believe in the devil. I don't believe in this little creature with horns and he's red and he's got a tail and a pitchfork. I don't believe in that devil. But Satan has painted that picture of himself because, I mean, if you've got... Uh, if you have an agency who are into subversion, I mean, take the CIA, all right, and Latin American companies, countries. What is the most essential thing to any agency working on subversion? It is total invisibility, that no one knows they're there. And Satan is literally subverting human history. So he needs to be invisible. He needs to have the human race not believing in him. So what does he do? Well, the sinful nature doesn't want to believe in, in Satan. Now, why doesn't the sinful nature want to believe in Satan? Well, because then you've got to believe in God. Can you see, so Satan has got people convinced he doesn't exist because they don't want to believe that God exists. If you believe Satan exists, that must mean there's a God. 
it doesn't go that if you believe in God, there must be a devil, but logically and philosophically, if you believe in the devil, there must be a God. So Satan hides behind all these ideas, these untruths, but all of them suit the human sinful nature. All right. So you have this massive propaganda campaign which is going on. Now then, turn now to Ephesians and chapter 6. Right, Ephesians chapter 6, and um, if you find verse 11, we were on this passage last time. Um, I have temporarily lost Ephesians. Ah, there it is. Um, Ephesians chapter 6, and this is the passage where Paul talks about, you know, this whole area of... Um, of spiritual warfare and you know like in verse 12 he says for we're not contending against flesh and blood or it's not a human battle but against the principalities the powers blah 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 there he's talking about them but look at verse 11 now again uh, for those who weren't here last time uh, this passage about the armor of God has been dealt with on a separate tape that's in the catalogue I'm not going to be dealing with that but what we want is this bit look in verse 11 he says put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, I just want you to notice, nowhere does the New Testament tell us to stand against Satan's power. We are never told to stand against Satan's power. But we are told to stand against his wiles. All right. Now, what does this mean, wiles? Okay. The Greek word here, when it talks about the wiles of the devil, is methodia. I could be really nasty and say that this is the Greek word we get Methodists from, but I'm not going to. I'm going to be a very good boy, all right. The Greek word is methodia, and its original meaning was deceit or cunning. Now, it eventually came simply to mean methodology, a way of doing something. But the meaning of the word, as used here originally, was deceit and coming. The literal thing that methodia means is literally after a way. And what it indicates is the idea, look, in any way, any method will do. I don't care how it happens, do it, get it done, all right? the ends justifies the means. It's that kind of idea. And it's, it's, it's the idea that anything which deceives will do the job nicely. Now, if you've got someone who's wily, what are they up to? They're up to deceiving people. That is what being wily is. And predominantly, with Satan, he works, not just him, but the principalities and powers, not by power in a sense of, you know, sort of like brute force or strength, but by deceiving people and by cunning, all right? And the point is that anything which deceives will do the job nicely. Now, obviously, where you've got diversity, you have to take different approaches. I mean, people are different. They've got free will. You know, God is himself diverse. He's a trinity. So therefore, mankind made in his image is going to be diverse as well. We're all different. Thank heavens we are. Now, therefore, uh, what might take in person A won't work on person B. 
And the sort of stuff that you needed to deceive the world in the 15th century is going to be different to what you need to deceive the world in the 20th century. Can you see? So Satan is all the time changing his methods. But anything will do. For instance, all right, some people, atheism works. Atheism. So Satan falls in with that. Not believing in a God. That works on some people. Other people, it doesn't. I mean, some people, they just instinctively, naturally believe in God. doesn't mean the Holy Spirit's working on them. They just believe in God. Other people, what works best for them is the pseudo-scientific, atheistic approach. So, therefore, atheism. Uh, other people, uh, Islam. Islam. That'll, that'll get them going. Or someone else, Buddhism, or whatever. The, the actual deception is not important. Any old deception will do. Don't expect to find uh, any kind of consistency. Satan is not after being consistent. He just wants to deceive people, and he'll do it in whatever way fits, in whatever situation. So therefore, Paul specifically says here, look, this spiritual warfare against these principalities and powers, what is their attack? What is their modus operandi? What are the weapons of their warfare? And what do we find it to be? Deceit, cunning, lies, wrong ideas, wrong thinking, the battle for the mind. And obviously as Christians, and when we did the Armour of God tape, and I do urge those of you who haven't heard it to hear it, it's important, uh, this passage is specifically talking uh, about what does the individual Christian do when Satan attacks them? Uh, this isn't talking about us attacking Satan, other passages do, we'll be moving on to that, but this is purely talking about how you as a Christian defend yourself from Satan's attack. And if you'll get that tape, you'll see that every part of this armour of God is to do with one thing, truth. And that it's there, each piece of the armour is there to protect you from a different form of attack. And every form of attack that each piece of the armour is there to protect you against, it's all based on lies and wrong thinking. Can you see that? So get that tape if you want to follow that through. But a basic thing is here, it's the wiles of the devil, his cunning and his deceit. That is how the principalities and powers control and manipulate, and that is what they're still trying to do to us every day. Every day, Satan wants to manipulate us into doing wrong and going against God. That is why we have to make sure that we're wearing, as it were, the armour of God. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Two Corinthians 11 verse 3. Now then, this is Paul um, writing to a church where, you know, this church is being deceived into false doctrine. Look at this, he says, But I am afraid that as the serpent, Satan, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray by a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. When Satan turned the human race against God and made the human race his own possession, because Satan is the god of this world, how did he do it? How did he separate God's creation from God? What was the weapon he used? It was cunning. It was deception. 
And Paul's saying, look, your thoughts will be led astray. Everything begins with a thought. It doesn't matter what you do, it begins with an idea. And if that idea is a satanic one, you will be led into sin. If the idea is a godly one, it will lead you into doing God's will. But can you see, the method that Satan and these principalities and powers use at every level is deception, cunning, lies, wrong ideas, wrong thinking. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4. We've been on this verse several times in this series, but we're going to go back to it now. So you can get the build-up to see what it is, what this spiritual warfare is all about. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in the later times some will depart, depart from the faith, giving heed to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. What is a doctrine? A teaching. A mode of thought, an understanding. Whether it's communism, modern psychology, evolution, false religion, uh, occultism, whatever. It is Satan manipulating the human race via wrong thinking. And this reference here to the doctrine of demons, can you see how it's referring here to the demons who are the principalities and powers? Not the demons who get inside people, not the ones on personal demonization detachment, but the principalities and powers. That they're affecting, they're influencing, they're manipulating human affairs with their lies and with their deceit. And so you can begin to see whether it's globally, whether it's locally, whether it's individually, alright? And it is all finally designed to keep people from becoming Christians and following Jesus. Or, once they are, to stop them from following him closely. Can you see? That is what the whole thing is about. Basically, to keep this world of human affairs in Satan's arena, rather than people ending up in the kingdom of God. And that is what the spiritual warfare is all about. Now then, a, a very quick digression here, all right? And it's just to deal with the fact that obviously, one form of this manipulation is obviously simply plain temptation, all right? Uh, I want to deal with it very quickly, because it's not the main thing that we're covering here in spiritual warfare, but obviously, <laughs> You know, Satan manipulates people via temptation. I mean, basically, every, every sin begins uh, with a demonic influence that filters through into, you know, into people's heads. And it basically this, oh, wouldn't it be nice if... Is it? And the idea, Satan <coughs> with Eve. Oh, Eve, wouldn't it be nice to eat that fruit? Oh, wouldn't that be lovely? God said you mustn't, but wouldn't it be lovely if, is it? So obviously one aspect of this manipulation is the straight temptation, all right, that, that people face. And um, go to Luke 4, all right? Go to Luke 4, I think we've got time to have a quick, quick dippy dippy into this. Luke 4 and verse... Um, Remember, after Jesus was baptised in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit led him out into the wilderness to be tempted uh, by Satan. Now, it's good to know that Jesus went through this temptation as well. Um, 
Luke 4, verse 13. Look, look at this. Again, it's Satan himself because it was Jesus himself. Don't think that when you're tempted, it's Satan himself. It's some underling demon. Right, Satan ain't got to, he can't give everyone individual attention the whole time, can he? But this was Jesus, so it had to be Satan. And look, and when the devil has had ended every temptation, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, three were recorded. But people think that Jesus was only subjected to three temptations. No, he wasn't. The Bible records three. Here it says, and when the devil had ended every temptation, we can never understand what Jesus went through in the wilderness, but he was subjected to every temptation there is. And it's good to know that Jesus was subjected to temptation at all. Nothing wrong with being tempted. Being tempted is not sin. <laughs> all right. Sinning is sin. Temptation is quite normal. Jesus himself was subject to it. Uh, go to Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4. But you can see in the temptation, Satan was trying to manipulate Jesus into going against his, his Father in heaven. Uh, Hebrews, uh, you'll, you'll see how this ties in. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. And the writer says, speaking of Jesus, For we have not a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every way has been tempted as we are, yet without sinning. So we saw in Luke that, you know, Satan left Jesus after every temptation, and the writer to the Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way, but Jesus never gave into it. But temptation is part of this spiritual warfare. Not the whole part by any means, but it is a part of it, and we need to be aware of it. Uh, just go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. One of the things I bear in mind in these Bible studies as we're belting around our Bibles is uh, mine's falling to bits and I don't see why all yours shouldn't be either. So I'm helping, to, helping you to get your Bible as wrecked as mine. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. And, uh, you know, Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your strength. But with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, I want to just remind you, one of the truths is, whatever Satan or whatever any demon does to you, you know, sort of like this influencing from the outside, nothing happens to you or I as a believer, but it's been cleared with God first. Can you see? So, you know, it's not that, that you know, the, these principalities and powers can willy-nilly do what they like. Whatever Satan does against us as believers, he has to clear with Father first, all right? Um, anyway, so there's temptation. What's the answer to it? Go to 1 Peter. One Peter, chapter 5, and uh, verse 8 and 9. And uh, Peter says, be, be sober. Be watchful. He was writing to a Scottish church. Um, <laughs> be sober. Be watchful. You're, no, the sober here means serious, incidentally. So stop laughing there in the back. Be serious. Uh, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your face. 
face. Faith. <laughs> resist him firm in your faith. So Satan tempts us, we resist it. We stand against it. We say no to it. We have that authority. Uh, go to James. We have to resist it, though. Right, James 4, verse 7. It says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee far from you. That's how we deal with temptation, simply resisting. That's the answer to it, okay. But, but here, our main concern isn't that aspect of Satan's working, uh, but this less understood area of manipulation through deception and sinful ideas. That is the main point of this spiritual warfare that we've got to understand. Temptation to sin is merely one aspect of what the principalities and powers are up to. The one, I mean, they keep that on the go all the time, obviously. They never let up on that. But the main thing is it's this manipulation through sinful ideas and deception. Remember that there is a complete coinciding between what Satan wants and what the human sinful nature wants. And when that coinciding takes place, then the result is manipulation and the carrying out of Satan's plans by human beings who probably don't even believe that he's there. That is how it works. At any time, in any situation, whether it's an individual or whether it's a nation, whether it's one person or whether it's a million, all right? If the sinful desires of people or that one person are the same as Satan's, be it governments, individuals, the United, Na you know, the United Nations, when what people want coincides with what Satan wants, then a channel is provided for Satan and the principalities and powers to work against the will of God in that situation. Now, take an example, all right, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm not going to go in, in any way, but I'm just going to chuck this out if you get an idea. Take Israel, all right. Now, Satan has worked long and hard for many, many years, in fact, you know, six odd thousand years of human history. No, five. Israel's only been around for 5,000 years, all right, odd. Um, but Satan has instilled into the human race an anti-Semitism which has now, it's just part of, you know, it's part of human experience, anti-Semitism, all right? Now, at the moment, you've got all the nations, okay? We have a very simple situation. Israel was given, in international law, its land back. International law, no quibble. In the doing of this, no nations were dispossessed. All right? Now, the world, and indeed the kind of the national, or the international community that backed the giving of Israel their land, is now saying to Israel, it's got to start giving that land up because people who have no claim to that land want it. Now, can you see how it's working? What do the other nations want? They want peace at any price. They want the favour of the Arabic nations. And uh, just a little something to do with that is three letters, oil, all right? And there's this basic anti-Semitism. 
anyone who backs Israel is going against the consensus. Now, can you see how Satan manipulates even Great Britain and America? Can you see how these principalities and powers are manipulating uh, nations against Israel because he's got them to close their eyes to the truth and the justice of the situation and merely be taking into account other considerations which have got nothing to do with it but which are going to appease the most people. Is he? I.e. no one is willing to do any suffering for Israel. And so we see the United Nations, who other things the United Nations do, very good, very good. 10 out of 10 here and there. But can you see the international manipulation against Israel? Satan does it. Now, I mean, the world community isn't against Israel because its thinking is, well, we're on the devil's side and Israel are God's people and, of course, you know, Satan doesn't like God's people, so if we're on Satan's side, we've got to be against Israel. No one's thinking like that because they don't believe in Satan. They don't believe in, well, they say they believe in God, what have you. They're being manipulated by wrong ideas. You know, like little toy soldiers, you know, Satan winds them up every morning and off they go, like little toy soldiers. Because he's using wrong ideas which appeal to their sinful natures and hence he manipulates the world against Israel. It's just kind of like a quick um, example uh, in regards to that. Now, what I want to start moving on to now is to see our part in this warfare. We've seen, you know, the weapons that the principalities and powers are using, uh, but we want to, you know, move on, because obviously we're going to say, right, how do we combat them? How do we fight? What are the weapons of our warfare? Uh, go back to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 7, Paul says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the plan of the mystery hidden phrases in God, who created all things, that through the church... The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. Now, after the death of Jesus, God brought his main weapon into force. Now, what is God's main weapon against the principalities and powers? Well, it's something that had been kept hidden for long ages, but was revealed after Jesus rose again from the dead. What is God's secret weapon? What was the ace that he was keeping up his sleeve? Well, I'll tell you, it was you and me. It's the church. The principalities and powers are going to be beaten by the church. And notice that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is going to be made known to them. Now, why wisdom? Why not power? God could have just obliterated Satan and the demons, you know, hurled them into the lake of fire any time he wanted to, but no, the punishment fits the crime. God's well into poetic justice. What was Satan's crime? He turned the human race against God. Now, what's poetic justice? How does the punishment fit the crime? God's going to use human beings to topple him. 
Can you see? Poetic justice. And that's exactly what the church is here for. The church is here to bring people to Jesus, but the spiritual counterpart to that is we are here to remove the power that principalities and powers have over them. It's a two-edged sword. And so God is basically, the weapon of his warfare is us. And it's revealing the wisdom of God. Why wisdom? What is wisdom? Wisdom, the application of truth. The application of knowledge. Why? Because the, the power that the principalities and powers use is that of lies and deception. So therefore you counter that with God's wisdom, with God's truth. All right. So how do we fight back? What are the weapons that we have? Go to 1 John. <coughs> 1 John, chapter 3. Now here's a verse that will make sense now. Or the first part of a little verse that will make sense now. 1 John 3 and verse 8. He who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Does that make sense now? You know, some people, they read that verse and they think, oh, I sinned today, I'm still of the devil, I'm not saved. That's not what the verse is there at all for. What it's saying is that sin is, you know, anyone who's sin the sinful nature is at one with Satan. Can you see? It's talking about this complete identification. The sinful nature is ultimately of the devil. Therefore, he who commits sin is of the devil. He was our father. He's not anymore because we're saved. But can you see the first part of that verse, this total identification of the fallen human sinful nature with Satan and the demons. But look what it goes on to say. The reason the Son of God appeared, i.e. Jesus, was to destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Now, this, this word here translated destroy, uh, not, I think, a brilliant word. The Greek word is luo, all right? And it means to loosen or break a hold. It means to set free. Uh, the idea of to destroy in our language rather means obliterate. You know, if you destroy something, there's nothing of it left. Um, you know, so, I mean, Jesus didn't come to destroy Satan in that sense. Satan will one day be thrown into the lake of fire, but when Jesus died on the cross, that wasn't the destruction that Jesus brought. What he did is he, wasn't that he destroyed the work of the devil, he loosed the work of the devil. Uh, he, he broke the hold of the devil over humanity. Because, remember, when Jesus died on the cross, the sin problem was sold. Jesus took away the sins of the world. It was the sins of the world that gave Satan his legal right over unbelievers. Now, they have been dealt with. Therefore, whereas the human race was legally Satan's, now it's up for grabs. Because the sin of the world has been dealt with through the death of Jesus. So therefore, Satan's legal hold over this world has been broken, it's been annulled by Jesus. If you like, Jesus came along and he undid the knot that Satan had tied around the world. That's what the death of Jesus did. And so therefore, because of that, um, and remember the, you know, the kind of the, 
the picture that Jesus used of Satan was that when he died on the cross, he bound the strong man. So that whereas Satan had the world bound and tied up, what Jesus did when he died on the cross is that kind of, he, he, he broke that hold and he's, he's given us the rope that we can no, now go and tie Satan up with. Can you see? Whereas the principalities and powers had the people tied up, we can now go and bind them, as it were. All right. So, because of Jesus' death on the cross, having broken that hold of Satan, uh, what we can now see is that what we're able to do as a consequence, because we are his disciples. The strong man is bound, the, the, the fatal blow to the principalities and powers has been struck. What we're going to be seeing is what we do to assert that victory over principalities and powers. Not trying to get a victory, but asserting the victory we've already got. Marching in, having already had authority to do so, and taking back the things and the power that these principalities and powers hold. Uh, go to 2 Corinthians 10 and we'll start touching on this now. I'm only going to touch on it tonight, but you've got to start somewhere. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 3. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 3. And Paul says, For though we live in the world, we are not carrying on a worldly war. Now, do you remember in Ephesians 6, we wrestle not with flesh and blood? Not carrying on a worldly war. For the weapons of our warfare are not worldly. I, they have nothing to do with human power. Nothing to do with it whatsoever. For the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now, let's, let's go through it. This, this word power, the divine power we've got, that word is dunamis. Dunamis, it means dynamite explosive power, it's the word we get dynamite from. When uh, Jesus said to the disciples, look, when you're baptised with the Spirit, you're going to receive power from on high, dunamis. It's all about the Holy Spirit. So we have the explosive power of God. And he says that we have this power to destroy strongholds. Now, again, that word destroy, scrub it out. That's, that's not the Greek word. The Greek word here is katharesis, and it means to pull down to pull down. Uh, yeah, right, okay, to pull down strongholds, um, to demolish them. So by use of this explosive power, I mean, if you put a keg of gunpowder or a load of dynamite uh, outside someone's front door, what you're going to do, you're going to demolish their house. You're going to pull it down. And that is literally uh, what Paul is talking about here. Uh, now, also, it's thought that one of the things that Paul um, is referring to here um, was that around, uh, you know, some years before he wrote this letter, the Romans were uh, having a real problem in Silesia. Now, they had certain trade routes that they used. This was at sea, all right, certain trade routes where they sailed their trade vessels, blah, blah, blah. And one of the problems they were having in uh, Silesia was um, that there was this gang, a massive gang of these really 
really sort of like pirates with a real lot of bottle. And what they'd done is these pirates had gone and got themselves this, this massive kind of castle, like on a peninsula, and it was virtually impregnable. And it went down to a bay, and it was perfect shield for them. But it was on the main trade route that the Roman galleons were going on. Now, what was happening, you know, almost perpetually, was that Roman galleons were being pirated. They were being raided. You'd be sailing along and boom, out of this bay, you know, came the pirate galleons onto the boat, everything onto their boat, whoosh, back into the bay. And they'd be up on this fortress on top of the cliff and no one could touch them. Because if you followed them, you, you, you just got barraged with things from this... this kind of stronghold, this fortress on top of the cliff. And so what eventually happened uh, is that, that General Pompey was given the job of sorting these pirates out. And what he did, and it took him quite a long time to do, but what he did, he manoeuvred loads and loads of his troops on ships at the bottom of this fortress, at the bottom of the cliffs. And it cost quite a few men. But basically, they kept scaling the wall and bringing in more ships until they were able to attach lines and hooks and that to the fortress, the outside wall. And over a few months, what they did is that these troops under General Pompey, from the boats at the bottom of the cliff, they literally pulled the thing down. They pulled this fortress down brick by brick. And that's how they defeated the pirates. And it's very possible that that is what Paul is talking about here. Uh, that story would have been well known by the people that he was writing to. And that's the idea of pulling down these strongholds. And when you get this word stronghold, it's ocuroma. And it means a fortress. That's literally what it means. A fortress, a castle, a stronghold. Um, and in Matthew 12, Jesus referred to Satan as the strong man. Do you see what I mean? So the strong man, the stronghold. So what is a stronghold? A stronghold is where, in the same way that pirates invade a galley and carry, in a, you know, in, invade a ship and carry off all the goods, a satanic stronghold is when Satan has gained power over people's thinking. He's hijacked them mentally, intellectually. Can you see? I.e., he's got them believing ideas which mean that he is able to manipulate them, as he were, from behind the cosmic curtain. All right. And uh, so here, what we're seeing is not the casting out of demons. You only cast demons out which are in people, the personal demonization detachment ones. Here, we're dealing with the influences of principalities and powers. And those influences, you don't cast them out you cast them down. Now, look at verse 5. What are these influences? We've seen have divine power to pull down strongholds. Look, we destroy arguments. At this point, you'd expect... I mean, most people, if their teaching was right, Paul would have to say here, we destroy demons, we cast out evil spirits, we this, that and the other. Look, look what he says. He says we destroy arguments and every proud obstacle to the knowledge of God. And why is it proud? Because human wisdom is in rebellion against God. It's pride. We know better than God. That's how Satan does it. The sinful nature doesn't want the truth to be true. 
All right. So, we destroy arguments and every proud obstacle to the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, why do you have to take every thought captive? Because in its natural state, it's going to go against God. So rather like a roaring lion, thoughts, our own included, have to be taken captive. We have to learn in the spirit to control our own thinking. But can you see what Paul is saying here? The destroying, the pulling down of strongholds is countering the falsehood, the lies, the wrong thinking through which Satan is manipulating human affairs. Let's just see as a quick, for instance, this influence on people specifically whereby Satan prevents them from becoming Christians. Go to uh, 2 Corinthians 4. And verse 3 to 6. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3 to 6. Uh, he says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the likeness of God. Can you see, through blindness, wrong thinking, Satan has blinded people's eyes to the truth of the gospel. Now, one of the things we're going to see is that in praying for someone to become a Christian, you can't pray against their free will, but what you can do is you have to pray for them so that this blindness that renders them incapable of hearing the truth, that this satanic blindness is countered, it's gone. And once it's gone, they can see the real issues. It doesn't mean they're going to get converted, that's up to them. But removing this blindness through prayer, that is pulling down a stronghold, countering the deception that Satan has got over them. Uh, go back into chapter 3, 2 Corinthians still, but chapter 3, uh, specifically in regards to Israel, this. Um, verse 14, uh, it's talking about the Jews. Their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. But when a man turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Can you see, that? that's strong, a satanic stronghold in people's minds, here nationally, on Israel. And it's only when through prayer that blindness is removed and then the person can take stock of the issues. Doesn't guarantee they're going to get converted, but it means that until that satanic stronghold has been broken through prayer, they can't even become Christians because they can't even see the issues on which uh, you know they can make up their choice, you know, as whether they're going to follow Jesus or not. So therefore, because the sinful nature doesn't want to follow Jesus, therefore, with that coinciding, the sinful nature doesn't want to follow Jesus, Satan doesn't want people to follow Jesus, the coinciding of their will and his will, boom, on goes the blindness on goes the stronghold, uh, on goes the manipulating, the control. And as we're going to move on on various talks now to see, that we have to counter what it is that Satan is doing um, in regards to that. And this is also why the way of Christian growth and maturity is by the Word of God. This is why we live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, what is the word that proceeds from the mouth of God? I'm holding it in my left hand. It's the Bible. Our only chance against Satan is 
by growing in the Word of God. Because it's cleansing our minds of all the rubbish uh, and all the demonic thinking that we were totally subject to before we were Christians. doesn't mean we got demons in the mind, that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, all of us, before we were converted, were full up with demonic rubbish up here. My demonic rubbish is different from yours, but it's demonic rubbish, and we've got to get cleansed of that, and it's only the Word of God that can do that. So then, what we've seen is that our battle as the church is with Satan and with the fallen angels, uh, the Bible referring to them as principalities and powers. These principalities and powers are the push behind human affairs. They are the manipulating control that's working from behind what I've called the cosmic curtain. They are the manipulators and the unseen controllers at back of human history. And the method they use is simply a battle for the mind. Satan controlling, manipulating, coercing people through the coinciding of what he wants and the coinciding of what they want, their sinful natures. So deception is thrown over them and they are manipulated. All right. Now then, we have the explosive dynamite of God. And that's our weapon. And what is this explosive dynamite of God? It is the Holy Spirit. And what is the Holy Spirit? He is the Spirit of Truth. And that is our weapon, the truth. And with that weapon, we fight back and we counter the working and the influence of the principalities and powers in whatever situations God has led us into. So then, how do we do it? How do we actually, on a practical level, pull down these strongholds? Well, if you come back next time, <laughs> I will commence to tell you. And uh, we're going to deal quite specifically next time, and curiouser and curiouser, with the question of location. And I'll let you muse on that until next time.